to be honest, I mean, at cocktail parties with people I don't know well, uh, I usually just say I'm a lawyer who works for the Department of Justice. It's, it's, it, there's very little you can say about what we do. Nick Schenkin works in Silicon Valley. And if that's where you work, well, you may have met him. You just wouldn't know he's actually an FBI agent. Uh, I tend to just bore them by telling them I'm a, I'm a lawyer who works for the Department of Justice, which isn't false, but it's boring enough that nobody has any follow-on questions. And there's something else you probably wouldn't know. The FBI has its own dedicated field office in California's capital for all things tech. Nick's job? To prevent industrial espionage and the theft of intellectual property, IP theft, at America's biggest tech companies. The best estimates that I've seen from private entities put the damage to the U.S. economy from IP theft somewhere between $450 and $850 billion per annum. I can tell you that a very, very significant percentage of that is coming out of Silicon Valley. And Nick says that the biggest threat of industrial espionage in Silicon Valley has increasingly come from one place, China. What's concerning about that is a trend that we've seen of more and more aggressive intellectual property acquisition by the Chinese Communist Party. They're targeting biotech, nanotech, ag tech, quantum technologies. If you look at their five-year plan, the breadth of the technologies that they intend to acquire is really breathtaking. I mean, it is across the board. It is part and parcel of their attempt to build a siege economy in technology. From where Nick is sitting, China's IP theft in Silicon Valley is neither haphazard nor opportunistic. It's all part of a large-scale espionage mission orchestrated by Beijing. Stealing early technology is the Foreign Intelligence Service's job. You know, that's what they do. They're very well resourced. They're at it every day just as, as a job. That is just their job. So, you know, we spend every day trying to stop them. This is Tectonic from the Financial Times with me, James King, the FT's Global China Editor. In this season, we're examining the rise of China as a global tech superpower and its battle with the United States for global tech supremacy. Because whoever wins will have the upper hand in shaping the technology that will affect all of our lives. In the previous episode, we heard how growing anxiety over China's technological advancements prompted a U.S. campaign to stop Chinese tech espionage and how it led to innocent Chinese scientists and academics being labeled as spies. In this episode, we find out about the true scale of China's efforts to steal U.S. tech secrets and how the growing distrust between the U.S. and China could put the future of scientific exchange at risk. Let's take you first to a chilly spring day in rural Iowa. It's 2011. An American field manager is surveying a vast tract of land where he's supervising the growth of genetically modified corn seeds. He works for a company owned by Monsanto, a biotech giant. He stops. He's noticed something unusual at the edge of one of the fields. An Asian man is crouched down on his knees, digging in the soil. 
Another Asian man looks on as he sits in a nearby car. The field manager approaches them and asks what they're up to. The two men say they're working for the University of Iowa and attending a nearby conference. The field manager isn't entirely convinced. But then his phone rings. And as he takes the call, the two men leg it. In fact, so keen are they to get away that they drive straight down through a ditch. Two years later, one of the men who'd been in that cornfield, Mo Hai Long, as well as six other Chinese nationals, were accused by U.S. authorities of digging up seeds from Iowa farms with plans to send them back to China. Mo pleaded guilty, and prosecutors argued that he specifically targeted fields that grow the parent seeds needed to replicate genetically modified corn. The Chinese government, for their part, refused to cooperate during the trial. Pocketing corn seeds may not seem very cloak and dagger, but then that may be why this case caught U.S. counterintelligence services somewhat off guard. For us, you saw our cases where they were stealing corn seed. It was hard initially to get your head around, hey, why are they stealing corn seed? That's Michael Orlando. We heard from him in the last episode. He's the acting director of America's National Counterintelligence and Security Center. He says stealing trade secrets has for decades played a key role in advancing China's prowess in technology. If you look over the last 20 years, the gains they have made, I would certainly say there's probably a number of cases out there that show that espionage has really helped them advance. When you bring together the espionage with the acquisitions and the joint ventures, it really gives them a supercharged program to advance in those technologies. There are dozens more examples of alleged Chinese corporate espionage to be found in U.S. court filings over the last few years. And some of them go right to the heart of Silicon Valley. Take, for example, tech giant Apple's secretive project to build self-driving cars. A Chinese national working for Apple of stealing trade secrets. Our investigative unit learned it's... Since 2018, two Apple engineers have been accused of stealing details of the project before applying for new jobs at Chinese rivals. Apple investigators say one of them, Ji Zhong Chen, had more than 100 photos of the inside of Apple's facility on his phone and a personal hard drive filled with proprietary material. Or there's the story of a robot called Tappy. The US phone company T-Mobile used it to test new handsets. T-Mobile had given Huawei employees limited access to Tappy to test Huawei's phones. Huawei entities directed employees to take photographs, take measurements. China's Huawei was so taken with Tappy, an employee allegedly stole the arm of the robot and smuggled it out in his laptop bag. The challenge for the U.S. intelligence community is the sheer range of tactics that China is employing when it comes to getting its hands on the latest technology. Michael Orlando says some of those tactics, like paid-up government spies or computer hacking, 
are clearly illegal. So that would be your insider threat, individuals who are knowingly stealing information from companies or the government. And then cyber threats, cyber intrusions, which is stealing information, whether of the Chinese intelligence service or uh, criminal hackers who are working on the behalf of the Chinese service. And then there are methods of gathering tech know-how that are perfectly legal. Take, for example, when a Chinese company buys a U.S. company or when a U.S. company does a deal with a Chinese partner. When companies want to do business in China, they are required to have a joint venture. And as part of that joint venture, they are required to hand over technology to the government. We've also seen uh, a number of acquisitions in which instead of trying to steal our information or a partner, they'll actually just buy out companies. And when you buy out the company, if you've now acquired uh, all the technology and the know-how that you need. But the challenge comes with a third approach intelligence-gathering efforts that skirt the edges of what is legal. In particular, what has U.S. authorities worried are China's numerous so-called talent programs. Since the 1990s, China has spent billions of dollars to attract talented scientists, academics and tech workers to Chinese companies and universities. Programs like the Thousand Talents are typically aimed at Chinese nationals working in institutions abroad. If you're a Chinese tech expert in the US, you might be offered a generous salary, research grants, and even an apartment to return home to in a Chinese city, bringing the skills and experience you've acquired with you. In many cases, they even offer to let participants split their time between China and their job abroad. I have encountered such programs. I mean, the city of Tianjin, for example, told me that if I just establish an office and they were like, it could be a fake office in their city, but, you know, I have to invest some money and spend some time there. As long as I can commit to that, they can give me a free apartment in Tianjin. Ray Ma is an American tech investor born in China. We heard from her in the last episode. She says attracting talented people is a huge challenge for companies and universities, particularly for smaller Chinese cities. There's a huge talent gap domestically. So the thousand talents might have been directed towards our returnees, but in general, they're just like so many of these subsidy programs, talent attraction programs within the country, where especially you have you know, it's almost like the smaller the city, the more aggressive they often are with their terms, right? Because if you're Beijing, Shanghai, you don't really have to work that hard to attract talent. But if you're a Xi'an or a Shenyang or something, then you may have to pay up quite a bit for people to consider moving. Talent programs aren't against the law. Countries all over the world have them. But in the case of China recruiting talent from the US, it becomes a problem when those people bring not only their skills and experience, but also confidential tech know-how. Back to Michael Orlando. There's nothing illegal about a talent acquisition program where you're trying to encourage people to come over to China to work, but it becomes quasi-legal when you start encouraging them to take technology from their employer. Take Micron Technology, the U.S. computer memory chip giant. Micron's planned investment of over $150 billion in manufacturing and R&D, combined with sustained government support. So if you go back to around 2013, the Chinese state-owned enterprise attempted to buy Micron Technologies. 
That deal was eventually blocked by U.S. regulators. And then in 2016 or 2017, uh, a number of employees in Micron and a subsidiary of Micron were recruited in a talent acquisition program to come over to a competitor company. And they took technology from Micron and it was being passed to a, a Chinese company. Talent programs are where we're going to continue to see challenges from China. So the Thousand Talent Program is one of, I think, at least 200 talent acquisition programs that they have in which they are trying to recruit Americans and others to come to China to work in China and bring the technology with them so that they can build up Chinese companies. I think companies and universities need to have wider awareness and to try to educate their workforce on these talent programs so that their employees think carefully before they take these opportunities knowing that these opportunities will support the Chinese Communist Party's agenda, which is generally not aligned with U.S. interests. The U.S. intelligence community's suspicion is that these talent programs are effectively spy recruitment networks. And it makes the job of combating Chinese corporate espionage all the more difficult. The U.S.'s spy hunters aren't just looking for hackers and bona fide Chinese spies. They're looking for anyone who might be encouraged to share trade secrets for the sake of their career. I think in the illegal spectrum, the FBI does an excellent job in countering insider threat and the cyber problem. But when you pivot over to those legal techniques, the tools that the FBI and others have don't really match up. That's where people like Nick Schenkin, the FBI's man in Silicon Valley, come in. When we go out and we interface with these companies, it can be surprising to us how little is common knowledge. Is the response mostly very receptive? It's usually very receptive, yeah. We're providing them with information they cannot get anywhere else. We can build that relationship to say, okay, here's your tool set so that they can get high quality red flags within their organizations. And then as that company is comfortable, they can share that information with us and we can continue to share intelligence with them. Nick will sit down in a Silicon Valley office and teach companies and investors what to watch out for. And then those companies and investors will pass on intel to the FBI about employee involvement in espionage. Is it possible to give an indication of sort of how many Chinese agents there are at any one time in Silicon Valley uh, looking for for intellectual property? Is it possible to quantify it in that way? Unfortunately, the actual number that we're aware of is a classified number, so I, I can't give you that actual figure. Suffice to say, the number present on the ground in any high-target area would be very significant. We encourage companies in their insider threat protocols to not look at employees as threats, but as potential victims of exploitation. You know, don't look at your employees as a, you know, potential insider threat. Look at them as a potential victim of foreign intelligence recruiting. But alerting firms is a fine balancing act. How do you warn companies about IP theft that might be happening within their own ranks without turning every single one of their employees into a perceived potential criminal agent? And what about accusations that sounding such alarms leaves many ethnic Chinese employees particularly vulnerable to suspicion or even unwarranted persecution? 
to clarify, it's it's not the Chinese people, it's or people of Chinese descent. This is the Communist Party of China. It's their espionage. It doesn't really have uh, a lot to do with the Chinese people. Just just to be clear on that. Nick says this line over and over again. But there's a further complexity that does make any Chinese national working in the U.S. a potential security threat in the eyes of the FBI. Chinese nationals have to share information with the Chinese government by law if ordered to do so. Anybody who is subject to their jurisdiction, any person, entity or company, they must yield all information to which they have access to the CCP upon demand. They refer to that as a whole of society approach to intelligence gathering. That's what the Chinese government refers to it as. So whereas in the West we think, well, we've got an NDA, we've got a proprietary agreement. In fact, those clauses are utterly useless against the law of the Communist Party of China. So what ends up happening is a tech company will enter into, say, a joint venture with a Chinese company or Chinese university or whatever it may be, really any entity subject to uh, the Chinese government. We think that we're dealing with a party who may be perfectly honest and decent as human beings or as or as whatever entity it may be, but they are subject to laws that force them to steal from that U.S. company uh, or that U.S. party or U.S. university. Logically, if you accept this FBI interpretation of Chinese law, absolutely every Chinese citizen living in the United States is a potential espionage threat. That's a bold claim, and it goes some way to explain why the FBI has cast its net so very wide. So wide, in fact, that innocent academics get ensnared, like Professor C, arrested, as we heard in episode one, his whole life and career turned upside down. The first time when I saw on the indictment, right, the United States of America versus Xiao Xingxi, I mean, that was a very, uh, the feeling was, uh, I cannot forget about it. We have to push back. Otherwise, to me, I, I think it's very clear this country is moving towards the direction where there will be zero academic or scientific exchanges with China. A quick break now. We'll be back in a moment. I'm Jacob Goldstein. I used to host Planet Money. Now I'm starting a new show. It's called What's Your Problem? It's a show about technology and business where entrepreneurs and engineers talk about the frontier problems they're trying to solve right now. I'm talking to people who get up every day and try to figure out how to do something that nobody on earth knows how to do. How do you take a drone delivery service that you've built in Rwanda and make it work in North Carolina? Our customers, they want us to do this unbelievably reliably in the storms, no matter what, hundreds of times a day. How do you start with the dream of turning single cells into tiny factories and wind up with a $10 billion company? We didn't have a particular technology. We didn't have a business model. We didn't have a way of making money, right? Um, It was a great way to start a company. (laughs) I highly recommend. How do you sell dog ramps to wiener dog owners all around America in the middle of a global pandemic? We're working with 400 influencers 
and the majority of them are actually not a person, but it's actually a dog. <laughs> and some of them have over a million followers. I can tell you right now, the Wiener Dog Ramp guy is working on some very interesting problems. The show is called What's Your Problem? and it launches on March 17th. Listen on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or say it with me now, wherever you get your podcasts. What's your problem? Subscribe now. The scientific community is worried about the impact of U.S.-China tech rivalry on the global exchange of talent and ideas. An end to scientific exchange would be a huge break from the past. For decades, the dream of studying in the U.S. has been an obsession for millions of young Chinese looking to advance in life. When I was based in Beijing as a correspondent, the FT Bureau was close to the American embassy, and every day you would see queues snaking around the block. Queues of Chinese applying for visas to study in the U.S. That is still the case, but for how much longer? China now is the largest uh, Thailand supply country to the United States. Wang Huiyao is founder and president of the Center for China and Globalization in Beijing. The U.S. is attracting the best talent around the world to the United States. You know, U.S. is picking the talent from 7 billion people, where China is picking talent from 1.3 billion. So I think that really makes a lot of difference in terms of innovation. But Wang says the hardline stance adopted by the U.S. intelligence community on suspected espionage is discouraging many talented Chinese from seeing the U.S. as a place to build their career. It's been reported in China, and China has a uh, government official has, has responded to that. And certainly there's a Cold War mentality. It's, it's actually turned off many Chinese students to study in the U.S. I mean, the number is dropping. Used to be uh, there's a big number increase, but now the number is, is dropping and they will have less people going to the United States. And he says another thing that the perception of China as a technological threat to the U.S. is damaging for both countries, preventing them from working together. I think, you know, everybody is is really amazed at the speed that China's been climbing the technology ladder. And uh, one of the recent statements that really struck me was from Eric Schmidt, the a former CEO of Google, who said uh, China was now in a position to soon overtake the United States in terms of its all-round technological power and, and, and expertise. Would you, uh, would you agree with that statement? I would still uh, think that that statement is a little bit overstated. Over, uh, I think U.S. is still the, uh, the largest uh, economy and the largest innovation country in the world. But China, you know, has its own advantage, of course. I think China can really, you know, learn technology and then maybe in terms of application can really do well in terms of manufacturing can do well. So, so I would think U.S. and China can be a best partner if, if they are really cooperating so then they can really enrich the world and they can really contribute in terms of prosperity and development. Cooperation, best partners... What Wang says there echoes the Chinese government line, a government that has repeatedly denied accusations of industrial espionage. It's a view that's miles away from the picture painted by Nick Schenkin at the FBI. Remember, 
Schenkin said that IP theft by the Chinese government is part and parcel of their attempt to build a siege economy in technology. It's a quote I took to Winston Ma. We heard from him in the previous episode. He's a former managing director of China's Sovereign Wealth Fund and an author of multiple books on China's technological transformation. And he's been part of that transformation. He studied semiconductor physics with law in Shanghai so that he could forge a career in patents and intellectual property in China. Does he agree with the view that China's technology boom is built on years of stolen U.S. tech? I think there's uh, some, some truth to it, you know, because the China's uh, patent legal system is still so young. Uh, but from a U.S.-China tech race perspective, right, the, the U.S., uh, should not stay on, on that aspect uh, because a lot of unique, completely original innovation are coming from Chinese innovation system right now. Winston Ma points to a startling fact. China is innovating on its own and quickly. It was the biggest source of applications for international patents in the world in 2020. A year earlier, it had knocked the U.S. off that perch. From the U.S. side, obviously, they should defend their own innovation. But as importantly, they have to put their innovation effort together and then compete with China head-to-head on the innovation itself. A few months ago, actually very recent, China has developed uh, a new government policy, another five-year plan, calling China to be a patent powerhouse by 2025. So it has the incentive to develop a patent law system to protect innovation. In fact, Winston argues that while IP theft may have been a problem in the past, there's less incentive these days for China. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com. And it's a steel tech innovation. Now, what do we see is the U.S. and China are at the same starting point in many of the frontier technologies, right? In AI, in blockchain, in cloud, in data analytics, uh, in, in all these frontier technology areas, U.S. and China are almost at the same starting point competing direct to each other. This is all cold comfort, though, to the legal teams defending dozens of US-based ethnic Chinese academics. Many of them are still facing espionage charges. As we heard in the previous episode, Gisela Kusakawa of Asian Americans Advancing Justice has been handling a lot of cases of ethnic Chinese scientists who argue they've been wrongly accused. We have always had this looming shadow over our head that we are not American, that we are disloyal, and that we are prone to some sort of acts of sabotage or economic espionage. 
More than 100,000 men, women, and children, all of Japanese ancestry, removed from their homes in the Pacific Coast state to wartime communities established in out-of-the-way places. What makes that suspicion particularly painful is that the United States has form on this front. Santa Anita Racetrack, for example, suddenly became a community of about 17,000 persons. Behind them, they left shops and homes they had occupied for many years. During the Second World War, after Japan attacked Pearl Harbor in Hawaii, the U.S. government confined people of Japanese ancestry to internment camps. At that time, our government thought and had presumed that everyone of Japanese ancestry was a national security risk and could commit acts of espionage. That was largely motivated by racial prejudice, and yet we're seeing that happen here now against Chinese American scientists and researchers, and very much under a very similar template. Still, while Gisela is worried that history may be repeating itself, Michael Orlando is worried that when it comes to China's growing tech power, the future might come too soon. My main concern is that time is not on our side and that we really need as a whole of government, whole society to get on the same page to recognize the threat and work together. And if we aren't able to pick up the pace, then the Chinese government will outpace us. In the next episode of Tectonic, how the island state of Taiwan the world's biggest center for semiconductors, has emerged as a key battlefront in the U.S.-China tech rivalry. I think that Beijing might decide to move on Taiwan, but it will move on Taiwan for uh, reasons that would be completely unrelated to semiconductors. Really, a lot of Taiwanese companies are, are stuck in the middle and forced to choose side and forced to let go of some of the business. You've been listening to Tectonic from the Financial Times. Watch out for the next episode in this series. It will publish a week from today on April the 11th. There's lots more reporting on technology on the FT website. And check out this episode's show notes for a link to get a special discounted subscription. I'm James King, the FT's Global China Editor. Edwin Lane is our Senior Producer. Josh Gabbert-Doyon is our producer and Manuela Saragossa is executive producer. With special thanks to Dimitri Sevastopilo, our sound engineer is Breen Turner with original scoring by Metaphor Music. And the FT's head of audio is Cheryl Brumley. And just one more thing before we go. If you're tired of doom scrolling and searching through endless news feeds, the FT launched a new iPhone app to help you read less and understand more. FT Edit features eight pieces of in-depth journalism a day, hand-picked by senior editors to inform, explain, and surprise. It's available now for iPhone users. Just search FT Edit in the App Store. <laughs>